Hello. We want to thank you for joining our Living Messiah family by downloading this podcast. We hope it blesses you and enriches your life. We also want to encourage you, uh, if you can, and if your heart is so moved, to support this ministry by going on our website, livingmessiah.com, and donating to help us to put these podcasts in every nation, every place, so we can bring these messages to change lives, to help people grow in the Word of God. Once again, thank you so much for being part of our family. Shalom. Oh, I'm glad you all found time on this warm evening to come out and, and do this. We'll, we'll have some fun tonight. There's some interesting things to talk about. So let me, let me open in prayer, okay? Father God, thank you very much for the evening. Thank you for this group of people that found time to come out and look at your Torah. I ask that you just be in our discussion tonight. Um, make sure, guard me that I don't get carried away and say things that may not be true. But uh, just, Father God, just uh, be in our discussion and help us learn from one another. I just, uh, I appreciate your word so much and I know that we're learning so much about you and how you'd like us to behave, how much you love us. Thank you very much, Father God, in Yeshua's name, amen. Okay, so we're still kind of at the beginning parts of Numbers. We started off last week. I always like to review a little bit so you kind of know where we are, right? Last week, uh, the first chapter of Numbers, that's, I remember as a kid, that's where I decided, well, this is stupid, I'm not reading this. You know, because you read some guy's name and how many people were in it and on and on and on. But we counted the number of people in the tribes. And then in chapter 2, we got to the way the tribes camped. And I have a that diagram is in the book, and we talked about it, but I wanted to go over it again. We found out that, besides I get to play with these toys, that's kind of fun. Um, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, those tribes, sit on the east. They camp on the east side of the uh, tabernacle. Reuben, Simeon, and Gad are on the south. Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin are on the west. And Dan, Asher, and Naphtali are on the north. And we noticed how the text was uh, designed or was... It implied that each one, of, each one of these groups of three had a, a tribe that was kind of the leader. Uh, the ones on the east, Judah was the leader. The one down here, Reuben was the leader. And the ones back on the west, Ephraim was the leader. And the one over here, Dan, was the leader. And then we got, uh, you notice, the Levites aren't in there, right? Well, that's because they're, they're different. We're going to talk a lot about how different they are tonight. But anyway, so if you go... Um, Inside this rectangle here, this is where the Levites camp out. And the Levites, you know, are one tribe, but they have three, you know, if you go down a level from tribes, I guess, I, I'm making this up, but the tribes, and then you have the clans. And the clans are based on the number of sons that each of the tribal, you know, namesakes had. You know, Judah had a, several sons, and so that's, those are the clans. So in Levi, Levite had Levi had three sons. He had Merari, Kohath, and Gershom. And so you have the Merarites, the Gershonites, and the Kohathites. Um, and they camped in these particular locations. And we talked a little bit about they all had responsibilities, right? The, uh, I forgot which one it is, the Merarites were responsible for, I can't remember what it was, the, the software and, you know, the, the, the covering of the tabernacle and all the cloths and all that kind of stuff. And the Gershonites were responsible for the hardware, the bases and, and the heavy stuff. 
Okay, it's the other way around. The other way around. Okay. And the Kohathites, they're, they're kind of special. Um, does anybody know what clan uh, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam came from? Kohathites. Right. So the Kohathites are the, um, the, the priestly clan to some degree. Yeah. Well, because, because he was the offspring, Kohat was the offspring of... Levi. Of Levi. Levi had three sons. And Merari, Gershon, and Kohath. And Kohath had a son whose name was Amram, and Amram had a son whose name right, was Moses. Right. But I'm just saying that how could Moses and Aaron be a, a, of a clan of somebody that wasn't even born yet? No, no. I don't see where you're getting that from. Well, Kohath was uh, Moses' grandfather. Oh, Kohath was? Yeah. Okay. okay. I don't know where I got that. I don't either. I don't know what I was That's, oh, who knows? Who knows what goes on? <laughs> but anyway, um, Kohath was special because his, his clan was the one, like I say, Kohath had some sons. We can go find it if we absolutely want to. But one of his sons was named Amram, and Amram had three kids. The oldest one was Aaron, and I don't remember whether it was, oh, yeah. Maybe it was Miriam. The oldest one was Miriam, the next one was Aaron, and then the third one was Moses. And those were the three children that Amram had, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. And so those are the offspring. And so uh, Moses and Aaron and his sons sit here. Now, the, the thing you have to understand is, first of all, there's the Levites, and then the Levites filter down into the, the three clans, and then the Kohathites filter down. And who are the priests? Sons of Aaron? The sons of Aaron. So it's, it gets really small, you know. You start from Levites and you go down to Kohathites and then you go down to uh, Amramites, I guess, and then you go down to um, Aaron. Only Aaron and his sons were priests. All the rest of them worked, if you will, in quotes, for Aaron and his sons. <laughs> so if Miriam had, okay, she may have some sons, I just don't know it, but so if Miriam had some sons, they would work with the Kohites. Kohathites. Well, it was a male, uh, a male hierarchy. So in essence, what would have happened is Miriam would have married somebody else. And, and, and she would have then been involved in... Priest. Yeah, yeah. As a matter of fact, so I, all the priests can trace their lineage through their father's father's father. Yep. That's exactly right. That's exactly. Theor, theoretically, that's that's the case, right? And you know, one of the the questions that comes to mind is one of the names you've probably run into in your course of of living is somebody whose last name is Cohen. Cohen. C O H E N. Cohen. Cohen is Cohen, which is the Hebrew word for priest. So theoretically, all those Cohens, well, I wouldn't say they were priests, but somehow or another, somewhere in their lineage, they were connected in some way to priests. Hebrew priests. 
Isn't that funny? I mean, maybe they were just one of the slaves for a priest or something. Who knows? But I guess my point is, is that's an indication. The word Kohen clearly is the Hebrew word for priest. And I just think it's kind of interesting. Any other thoughts? Okay, that was all by way of review. Sorry about that. Um, not really. We talked about the Gershonites. We're in chapter... We had gone through chapter 3, and we're just getting ready to go to chapter 4. Let me skim through a couple of uh, sections of chapter 3 just to make sure. We were, I was going to uh, summarize just a little bit of chapter 3 before we move into chapter 4. So chapter 3 is about, you know, it, it's talking about the Levites. Um, it goes through in chapter, starting in verse 21, it says... Uh, to Gershon belonged the clans of the Libnites, the Shimeites. Uh, these were the Gershonite clans. So those are those Libni and Shimei were the sons of Gershon. And then it goes down there and it says, uh, at verse 25, it says, At the tent of meeting, the Gershonites were responsible for the care of the tabernacle and tent, its coverings, the curtain at the entrance to the tent of meeting, the curtains of the courtyard, the curtains at the entrance to the courtyard surrounding the tabernacle altar, and the ropes. So, uh, like I say, in New Zealand, we call that the Manchester. That was the soft stuff. That was the bed linens and the quilts and the blankets and all that. So the Gershonites did the, the, the soft stuff, okay? Then if you go to verse 27, it said, that's Kohath. We'll come. Well, let's, let's read there for a second. To Kohath belong the clans of the... Amramites, the Izharites, the Hebronites, and the Uzielites. Those are the four sons of Kohath. Okay? And we know that uh, uh, Moses, Miriam, Moses, and Aaron were sons of Amram. Anyway, it says they are responsible. Verse 30. The leader of the families of the Kohathite clans was Elzaphan, son of Uziel. They were responsible for the care of the ark. The table, the lampstands, the altars, the articles of the sanctuary used in ministering, the curtain, and everything related to their use. Uh, the chief leader of the Levites was Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest. Okay? So the Kohathites actually handled the furniture. Remember when we were looking at the tabernacle furniture, all of them, well, almost all of them, had little rings and poles were stuck in the rings, and those poles were for carrying them. So the Kohathites were the ones that carried them. And it goes on in verse 33, it says the Merarites, um, Mahalites and Mushites, and then it goes on in verse 35, oh, verse 36. The Merarites were appointed to take care of the frames of the tabernacle, its crossbars, posts, bases, all its equipment, and everything related to their use as well as the posts and the surrounding courtyard with their bases, tent pegs, and ropes. So the Merarites had the hardware. Their responsibility was the hardware. So that's how they divided it up. I think it's fascinating that God did this. He divided it all up, and, you know, that's how it works. So let's, it gets even more interesting. So it says, Moses, Aaron, and his sons were to camp east of the tabernacle, as shown in that picture. Um, they were responsible for the care of the sanctuary on behalf of the Israelites, Anyone else who approached the sanctuary was to be put to death. So one of the questions I remember talking about last week was, um, how do you think all the Israel, Israelites felt about seeing the ark? They, they didn't. 
None of the others, the only person that saw the ark was the high priest. And he only got to see it once a year. And didn't he not necessarily always see it because he had to put that smoke in front of it? Yeah, Bob, one of the things that happens is they did a bunch of incense. And my theory, and I think it's not just mine, but right. what, what I figured out is that the smoke was so that the, the glory, if you will, the Shekinah, wouldn't, that, that's what kills people. And so if you put enough smoke in there, it obscures things, and, and so you don't, you don't get fried. That's, right. that's kind of a you know, right. simplistic way to look at it, but John? Could it be like you're looking through a glass darkly? Oh, sure, sure. You're looking in a, in a foggy, you're looking at something in a fog. But he I'm did see I'm quoting it. Paul. Thank you. He did see it because he had to go in and sprinkle blood at the base of the ark. So he, he could find his way around in there. Anyway, um, verse 39 of chapter 3, the total number of Levites counted at the Lord's command by Aaron and Moses and Aaron, according to their clans, including every male a month old or more, was 22,000. Okay. So there were 22,000 Levites, Levite men, a month old or more. Remember that number. Okay. Let me go on verse 40. Uh, Yahweh said to Moses, Count all the firstborn Israelite males who are a month old or more and make a list of their names. Take the Levites for me in place of all the firstborn of the Israelites and the livestock of the Levites in place of the firstborn of the livestock of the Israelites. I am Yahweh. So Moses counted all the firstborn of the Israelites as the Lord commanded him, the total number of firstborn males a month old or more listed by names wa were, was 22,273. So we got two different things here. One thing is a listing of all the male Levites that are one month old or more. Was that what it was? The other listing, that was 22,000. The other listing of 22,273 was all the firstborn male Israelites, period. All of them, except the Levites. It's all the others, but it was just the firstborn. In the case of the Levites, it was every male. In case of all the rest of the Israelites, it was the firstborn male. The firstborn male of every Israelite clan, one month old or more, was counted, and that number was 273. Then he goes on, verse 44, Yahweh said to Moses, take the Levites in place of all the firstborn of Israel and the livestock of the Levites in the place of their livestock. The Levites are to be mine. I am Yahweh. To redeem the 273 <clears throat> firstborn Israelites who exceed the number of the Levites, collect five shekels for each one according to the sanctuary shekel, which weighs 20 geras. Give the money for the redemption of the additional Israelites to Aaron and his sons. So, see what's going on here? Who can, who can tell me what's, what's happening? They have control of their birth certificate. Trust. <laughs> that's, that's one way to summarize it, yeah. Well, you know, I, it makes me question this. Then, okay, that's for this group. 
What did they do all those other years, like when people were having babies and, and the population was changing? Mm -hmm. did, they, did they not? Um, they didn't have to do this but once. That's what I thought. Yeah. They only had to do it once. This, this time right here. So, so a lot of times when people are saying they're redeeming their firstborn, they're really not. Is that right? No, that's not right. Okay. The, what, well, well, no, I'm just I curious. The, you know? the, what, uh, that was the second part of my question. The first part of my question, what God says that Moses and Aaron are to do, you see, if you just turn down the, the gain on any of them, they'll be fine. Um, the, God says, I am trading the firstborn male of all of Israel right. for the firstborn, or, or for the Levites. Right. I'm trading the firstborn male of all of Israel for the Levites, one to one. Right. Okay. Now I'm, I'm, I'm letting you redeem them. Okay. In other words, I'm, I'm. Uh, normally they would be mine, God says, but and I don't. I'll let you trade them. I'll let you redeem them. If you'll give me a Levite, then I'll give you your son. So that's what he's doing. Right. But my question is, later on in the future generations, there were still Levites. And so did they count up the people all the time? No, this and happened then, once. Well, that's what I'm saying. Then, then, then why, why are you saying it again? Because I'm saying it again, because then their redemption value, they were only redeeming all of the firstborn of Israel one time. Well, everybody can only be redeemed once. I understand that, but what I'm saying is the future generations did not then were redeemed by the Levites. I don't understand why you're concerned about that. Because, because I know, you know, Jews still, Jews still um, say they're redeeming their firstborn. Well, that's a different, that's a different, that's a different process. What this was, as a matter of fact, let's go there. Why did God do this? Well, and I'm asking for a personal reason too. I don't. Well, no, I don't wait, wish to answer stay, my question. Why did God do this? Why did? Um, because because he took them out of Egypt, and because they they he killed all the firstborn of Egypt, and they were he, and they were redeemed by the Levites. Okay. What actually. he said was, yeah, that's essentially right. What he said was, on the night that I brought you out of Egypt, right. I took the firstborn of everybody. Everybody in Egypt. Right. Okay. And so the firstborn male of the Egyptians became mine and they died. The firstborn males of the Israelites became mine, but I didn't kill them. Right. Okay. But they're mine. So right. now when he gets here and we're implementing the tabernacle and all this kind of stuff, and he wants the Levites to be responsible for the tabernacle and the priesthood, he says, I want all those males that belong to me to be Levites. So I'm going to allow you to trade. I'm going to allow you to trade a Levite for a firstborn male Israelite, which is already mine. So he's trading is what he's doing. I understand that. Okay. And he only needs to do this once because now all the Levites are all in one spot and they're the ones that have to do with the tabernacle. So it only has to happen once. Okay, well, that's still, you know, I still would like to understand the other 
What happens to the bonsir that goes into in, in perpetuity? What happens to his offspring? They go to the master. Yeah. It doesn't matter how many generations down. Yeah. Until well, that breaks, mm -hmm. that all the, the Levites and all his offspring are now uh, are, are his, legally his. What? Yes. Yes. It's because God wants. No. What you're talking about is this first redemption of the firstborn. That's what you're talking about. And redemption of the firstborn is a right that God implemented because he said the firstborn male is mine. And he came up with a different method of doing it. But it's the same rule because the firstborn male is his. This is where he decided the firstborn male was his. Well, as I said, that's debatable. As I said last week, it, it was the firstborn, the firstborn of the Israelites to lose this position, which they did mm -hmm. during the, the golden calf incident. I would say. Yep. So, well, why, so the question: Why is he doing this? Why, why, what's going on? Who cares? Mm -hmm. what, what's the point? The the point is, as I understand it, is this way: the Levites his. They, the have Levites, no, they, they, they speak to no one else. That's right. The Levites, there, there's no other master above them. That's right. The Levites are the ones that are all gods. Every Levite belongs to God, and every Levite is responsible for the tabernacle. They're sovereign to no man except yeah. God. Yeah. So they're really different than all the other tribes. Right. I, don't know, I just think it's kind of interesting the way it works. Well, I think that's important because what these guys do is government administrative type functions. Mm -hmm. And so they don't have, when, and ultimately in, in legal matters, you're discussing property. Yep. You're discussing, you know, you trespass against this guy, so therefore we're going to make an adjustment in property. They're to, judges. To, to judge, right. Yep. But if they don't have any, pro if they don't have any property in the land, then they are, they are impartial. Impartial. Yeah. That, I think that's the thing. goal. Yep. That's, that's good. I just think it's neat the way he did it. And then you've got this little, uh, this little problem with the 273, right? I think it's good. It's probably, what do you want to say, realistic that the number of firstborn Israelites doesn't exactly equal the number of all the Levites. And as a matter of fact, they're different by 273. So in order to handle that problem, in verse 40 it says, to redeem the 273 firstborn Israelites who exceed the number of Levites, collect five shekels for each one, according to the sanctuary shekel, which weighs 20 giras, and give the money for the redemption to of the additional Israelites to Aaron and his sons. So Moses collected the redemption money from those who exceeded the number redeemed by the Levites. From the firstborn of the Israelites, he collected silver weighing so many shekels, and if you multiply it out, you actually get that. According to the sanctuary shekel, Moses gave the redemption money to Aaron and his sons as he was commanded by the word of Yahweh. So, that's, that's kind of a cool thing. Yeah. Okay, I think I misunderstood that verse. So this is, um, that isn't the extra out of the Levites, that's out, out of all of Israel. Ugh. So what he did was, yeah, the, the, the Israelites had more. The Israelites had the 2,273. The Israelites only had 22,000, 22, yeah, 22,273. So there were 273 more Israelites than there were Levites. And so God said, okay, in order to make this all work out right, you can pay to redeem the, and that's really more the model that you're talking about. You can pay the five shekels and you can redeem that firstborn son. 
and the five shekels, the money, goes to the Levites. That's all I was going to say. In other words, that set the precedence for what Lisa was talking yeah. about in the future redemption yeah. of yeah. That's, the Israelites. I, I'd have been smart. I would have picked up on that earlier. So what happens if you refuse? I'm not paying. Well, that's a good point. What happened to Moses when the Lord said he was coming looking for Moses? Way back in, yeah. in Exodus chapter 3 or yeah. 4. Go ahead. I've come to kill you, Moses. Yeah. Yeah. Remember that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. He didn't he didn't pay, he didn't do what was required of him yep. to do the circumcision yeah. of his son. Well, and you know, another limb, I may be out on a limb here, but I don't think so. Um, Samuel and Hannah, you know, went to went to the priest. Who was that? Eli? And yeah. said, if you know, she was praying, if I could get pregnant and have a son, I'll give him to you. Um she could have probably, I mean, she made the oath, and she couldn't back down on it, but she had the option under normal circumstances to redeem him for five shekels, but uh, she made this permanent. And so Samuel became a property, if you will, of the Levites. It's also interesting that it's just five shekels. What is that? That's chump change. That's oh, something you, yeah. you can find in the couch. It's, well, it's interesting that today it's like a buck and a half. Right. So... <laughs> My point is, a legally binding contract, the value of the exchange, which you need to have for a contract, is dependent on the parties. Exactly. Nobody else. I could say, well, that's ridiculous. You, you, you get to be a priest and all this stuff, and, and, and you get all these benefits, and it only costs you five shekels? Yeah. Well, that's what we agreed to. Yeah. It's nobody else's business. You'll even see that sometimes. You know, some, sometimes it's usually people trying to get around some tax implications. They'll, they'll sell somebody a house for a dollar, you know, and it's not really. Well, it is. They're selling the house for a dollar. What they're really doing is giving it to them. Well, I mean, well, less a dollar. But, but the thing is, is that way it's not a gift. It's a legal transaction, you know. We've, we even write it up as a contract. We're going to exchange. This, the, the buyer is exchanging the dollar for the seller's house. That's why <laughs> you're not sure you want to go there. Because then in a will, you have to leave somebody a dollar, you know, if they're your kid, because... Um, well, the advantage of doing that is that... Supposedly they, they can't, can't say protest that they it, inadvertently they left you out. Yeah, they, no, I didn't leave you out. That's just what I wanted to get But, but you can actually get more money from... Uh, well, that's, that's a different issue. <laughs> okay, you got a. I think that's pretty interesting. We can go on, but I just want to make sure that we. I don't think we effectively covered that last time, so I wanted to do that. Do you have questions? Okay. Okay. So, well, let's so go ahead. There, so you're saying this is different than this is what Lisa brought up. This is different than the redemption prophets for the firstborn later on. All the other. Well, Israelites. It, it sets the precedent in a way. Okay. Because typically, you know, your firstborn. You, as a matter of fact, that's what uh, Joseph and Mary did with Yeshua, right? Is they, they went and paid the five shekels to redeem him. Well, so what does that mean? If, the, if this is about dealing with administrative matters, judicial matters between Israel, within the kingdom of Israel, mm -hmm. then what does the other one mean? Does it mean you're, that Israel is sovereign from the other nations? Did you make that connection? I 
don't think so. I think, I think this is still... I like that, though. You kind of like that, yeah? I think that this is still the fact that God says the firstborn male is mine. No, no, no. I'm, I'm not disputing that. Yeah. But, but that pattern comes down, the firstborn of everybody else who's not Levi. Well, you're right. There, you, there's that connection there. But this is specifically for the Levites in a special... Well, this is, but the right. redemption, the, the redeeming of the firstborn son, they, they call it what? Ben Pidion, I think. There's a there's a name for it. Right. Um, okay. um, is is to be done by every um, contracted Israelite. In other words, everyone that 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 is signed up to the covenant. That's part of the rules. Is that the firstborn male belongs to God, but He's allowed you to redeem him for five shekels. The main thing here, the five shekels, it does one thing that John said. It it shows the the fact that it doesn't matter how much money is involved, and God purposely made it rather small so that it was not a big onerous thing for people to do. But the other thing is, and this is key, is it gets this whole concept of redemption up on the table so we can talk about it, right? Redemption is key to all of this because redemption is what allows us to have the relationship with God we've got. Yes? Yes? This may be a silly question because you might have just answered it, but I've always been curious what that redemption involves. Like, yeah, what does that mean what is exactly? It, well, um, like I say, I may be out on a, a limb on some of this, but I know that to a large degree, the way we understand the sacrificial system is that you are basically God is allowing you to substitute an animal in place of yourself because what you deserve is death. Okay? So, and, and with with Yeshua, he said, and it was, it's all over here, you know, uh, the lamb of the world who uh, has redeemed us from our sins. In other words, he paid the price. He went in our place. He redeemed us. Uh, God, God says, I'll make this deal with you. If, if you can provide a sinless, a sinless person who is willing to give himself to me uh, in place of you, uh, then I'll accept that and you don't have to die. That, that's basically what redemption is. So, back to the like five shekels. Well, that's just one person for all, every human on earth, or at least the rest of Israel. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the deal. Yeah. You want it? Well, this is the offer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Take it or not. Yeah. It's not a bad deal. Right. You'd be stupid not to take it, right? <laughs> but again, we can find places in Scripture where certain people didn't, and a good example is Samuel, but there's others. There's others who had the opportunity opportunity to be redeemed and, and uh, their parents basically said no. Said, you know, they belong to God. Here, God, take them. And they're usually noteworthy kind of characters like Samuel. This concept of redemption is important. I'm not sure I fully get it, but I know that that's, that's, a, uh, that's a, a lot of it. That's kind of a kernel, if you will. I just say one more thing. Please I think do. it's a difference between title and uh, holding the title and equitable interest in the thing that you're redeeming. So the parent gets the equitable interest in the child, but technically the title is held by God or, or the priest of God. That's a good way to look at it's it. The way to, the, the bifurcation of what ownership means. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. The, county, the county has the title to the land, to the property, to yeah. one's house, but you have use of the house. Yeah. That's what you get when you redeem your, your son. Right. Yeah. Interesting.
we'll move on. Um, chapter four. Let's see. Well, let's let's read it. This this good stuff. Would somebody like to read chapter four through verse seventeen? We can. Um, through verse twenty. Through verse twenty. Good for you, Elijah. Want to read all that? You sure? Yeah. Chapter 4, verse 1 through 20. And Yahweh spoke to Moshe and to Aaron, saying, Take incenses of the sons of Kohath from among the children of Levi, Levi, by their clans, by their father's house, from 30 years old and above, even to 50 years old, all who enter the service to do the work in the tent of appointment. This is the service of the sons of Kohath, Kohath the tent of appointment, to the most Kodesh matters. At the breaking of camp, Aaron and his sons shall come, and they shall take down the covering veil and cover the ark of the witness with it. And shall put on it a covering of fine leather and spread over that an all blue wrapper and shall insert its poles. And on the table of showbread they shall spread a blue wrapper and shall put on it the dishes and the ladles, then the bowls and the jars for pouring and the showbread on it. And they shall spread over them a scarlet wrapper and cover the same with the covering of fine leather and shall insert its poles, and shall take a blue wrapper, and cover the lampstand of the light with its lamps, and its snuffers, and its trays, and all its oil vessels by which they serve it. And they shall put it with all its utensils, and in the covering of fine leather, and put it in a bar, on a bar. And over the golden altar, altar they shall spread a blue wrapper and cover it with the covering of fine leather and shall insert it, its poles. And shall take all the utensils of service which they, which they serve in the Kodesh place and shall put them in a blue wrapper. Cover them with the covering of fine leather and put them on a bar. And shall remove the ashes from the altar and spread a purple wrapper over it. And shall put on it all its, all its utensils by which they serve there, the fire holders, the forks, and the shovels, and the basins, and all the utensils of the altar. It shall spread it on a covering of fine leather and insert its poles. And when Aram and his sons have finished covering the Kodesh objects and all the furnishings of the Kodesh place at the break of camp, then the sons of Kohath shall come to lift them, but not but let them not touch that which is Kodesh, lest they die. These are the burden of the sons of Kohath, the tent of appointment, and the oversight of Alizar, son of Aaron, and the Kohen is the oil for light, and the sweet incense, and the daily grain offering, and the anointing oil, and the oversight of all, the miskan, and all that is in it, with the Kodesh place and its furnishings. 
And Yahweh spoke to Moshe and Aaron, saying, Do not cut off the tribe of the clans of the Kohathites from among the Levites. Levites. But do this to them, and they shall live and not die when they approach the most Kodesh objects. Aaron and his sons shall go and, and appoint each of them to his service and his burden. They are not, however, to go and look, to watch while the Kodesh objects are being covered, lest they die. Great. You did a very, very good job. Thank you. Yep. So this is really clear, I think. It shows exactly what Aaron and his sons are supposed to do. And can you summarize it? Aaron, yeah, set, Aaron and his sons set the table. Well, they, well, they cover everything up. This is getting ready to move, right? It says, you know, what, what do they do, for example, with the veil that separates the holy place from the most holy place? They put it over the ark. And then over that, they put leather, and over that, they put a blue cloth. Okay? And they, and they stick the poles in there. Actually, the poles were always in there. And, they, and it describes in detail. Then they go do that with the table of showbread. And they, they have a special thing that they wrap all the utensils in and a leather thing that holds it, and they put the poles in it. And then they, they do that with the uh, menorah, and they do that with the golden altar. Uh, and they said, only Aaron and his sons do this. Okay? And the, their fellow Kohathites, their cousins, if you will, can help. As a matter of fact, their job is to move the stuff. So, and it says Eleazar is the one that tells them. It says, okay, look, you know, Joe Bob and Fred and Sam and uh, George, you guys, one each on the corner over here, this is, this is, I want you to carry this thing. So that's what uh, Eleazar does. He basically tells them what it is they're supposed to carry. And so they order all of that. But the actual covering of the stuff is done by Aaron and his sons. So, and it says, real clearly says, these guys, these other guys can't come in and help you because they'll die. <laughs> Pretty good incentive. Yeah. But these, the ones they're talking about are the ones that rebel with, conspired with the sons of Reuben. It's these guys. And I think there Some are, of them, yes. Right. Well, right. And the argument was, well, why can't we, you know, we should be able yeah. to do this too. Well, who, who are you? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Who... Who, who died and made you charge, in charge of everything. But the answer is real clear. God did, right? <laughs> God says, this is how I want it to work. Um, so these are the jobs that are described for the Kohathites in great detail. What age are the people that are going to be doing these? Yep. And they're... 30 to 50, right? Yep, so 30 to 50. What, what it amounts to is before 30, you can be an apprentice, and then after 50, you can be a mentor. But your responsibility is between 30 and 50. Okay, and one of the, I don't think we've read it yet, but we're going to read in here that no job swapping. Okay, if, if, uh, if Eliezer says, look, this, you know, you get the left rear corner of this carrying post, then you've got that for the 20 years. And you don't get to say, hey, George, let me try your side. It looks like a better view from over there. Or, you know, you don't do that. It, it, everybody's got their specific job, and they do that job. 20 years is not that long, really. But you, you're supposed to treat it like it's, you know, it's a, it's your, well, it is. It's your function in life to do that job for that period of time. Yeah. 
Yeah, sure. Just fits this. I, I'm sorry to distract. That's fine. That's okay. So you're talking about how they each have a job. Yep. You know, you take this corner, you whatever. So growing up, there were seven of us kids. The only way we could, you know, <laughs> vacation was uh -huh. camp. Yep. And we had a pop-up camper with the canvas walls and the two slide-outs. The thing was, none of the boys could go fishing until the camper was up and ready. <laughs> so, of course, they wanted the most efficient way to do it. But if we had the two littlest kids try to tuck in the canvas, they couldn't reach. So we had to work it out so the littlest kids knew how to put the jacks underneath, they'd crawl under, yeah. and they'd do the jack, each had two on a corner, while us bigger kids tucked in the canvas, the two boys popped out the sides, we tucked in the canvas. That camper was fully functioning, always under 15 minutes it was done. <laughs> yep. Because, yep. because if we did something else, you know, some of us, we were too big, we couldn't get under that small space. Yeah. It had to be the little ones. Yeah. The little ones weren't tall enough to reach the upper space. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So it yeah. all worked so, out So yeah, yeah, there's, there's a wisdom in doing it this way. Yep. But again, aside from the fact that this is all just real straightforward, I'm just amazed that it's in the Torah. You know, we've got to learn something. And the most obvious thing to learn first off is, is God's a God of order, boy. Yeah. Yes, Chris. John can't eat his. So I know I wasn't here last time when you guys were going over like why there was a census brought in the first place, which was uh, according to this book, like in, a, in preparation for war. Yeah. Okay. So going to my military mindset, when you do a job over and over and over again, it demands perfection and it demands that there's no error ever made. Yep. Because if one person fails, it risks the integrity of, of the, the entire unit. unit. Yep. So beyond just it being like a smart way to do this, it plays into the bigger picture of what they're probably going to come across yeah. and come and, yeah. and experience yeah. shortly. I agree. And not only that, but there's probably even a deeper lesson than that. And that is that in a community, everyone has a role to play. They really do. Now, you may not know what it is, and other people may not know what it is, but God knows what it is. And if you're smart, You'll get with him and figure out what it is and do that. <laughs> so anyway, I like that. that. That's a good thing. Let's, let's go on. So we did the uh, Kohathites. Let's look at the Gershonites from verse 21 to 28. Does somebody want to read from verse 21 to 28 in chapter 4? Lisa. The 4 recognizes Lisa. 21 to 28. Okay. Yehovah spoke to Moses, saying, Take a census of the sons of Gershon as, as well, according to their father's household, according to their families. From 30 years of age and up until 50 years of age shall you count them. Everyone who comes to join the legion to perform the work of the tent of meeting. This is the work of the Gershonite families, to work, to work and to carry. They shall carry the curtains of the tabernacle and the tent of meeting, its cover and the tahash cover that is, over, that is over it from above, and the screen of the entrance of the tent of meeting, the lace hangings of the courtyard, and the screen of the entrance of the gate of the, meet, of the meeting, wait, entrance of the tent of meeting, the lace hangings of the courtyard, and the screen of the entrance of the gate of the courtyard were were around the tabernacle and the altar, their ropes and the, temp the utensils of their service, 
and everything that is made for them they shall serve. According to the word of Aaron and his sons shall be the work of the sons of the Gershonites, the entire burden and their entire work. They shall appoint their entire burden as their charge. This is the work of the sons of the Gershonites of the tent of meeting, and their charge shall be under the authority of Itamar, the son of Aaron the Kohen. Why don't you go ahead and read, if you don't mind, down to verse 33. Okay. The sons of Merari, according to the families, according to their father's household, shall count them. From 30 years of age and up until 50 years of age shall you count them. Everyone who comes to the legion to perform the work of the tent of meeting. This is the charge of their burden for all their work in the tent of meeting, the planks of the tabernacle, its bars, its pillars, and its sockets. The pillars of the courtyard all around their sockets, their pegs and their ropes, for all their utensils, for all their work. You shall appoint them by name to, to the utensils they are to carry on their watch. This is the work of the families of the sons of Merari, according to, according to all their work in the tent of meeting under the authority, authority of Itamar, son, son of Aaron the Kohen. Okay. So, um, you know, we got the Gershonites doing the soft stuff and the Merarites doing the hard stuff. But you remember one of the things that the thought that crossed my mind was, um, you know, when they set up the, the tabernacle, the, the tent actually, you know, there are these big planks and each one of these planks sits down and one corner goes in, they go in silver bases, I think. And one, there's a silver, two silver bases and you put the plank down and then the, the silver base that's here has one plank on half of it and another plank on another half of it and that's the way they, they stack them up. And what, what the, basically what they're saying here is uh, you, Merarite here, Fred, Fred Merarite, um, you get this third plate over here. That's your plate. Whenever we go to move, you be ready to pick that plate up as soon as the plank comes out, and you carry that plate. And whenever we set the thing up again, you get where you need to be so that as the plates go down and it's your turn, you put your plate where it is supposed to go and the plank can go right in it. So everybody has a very specific job. And I could imagine that this thing, like, like your camper, just kind of packed up in a, in a big flurry of activity, trucked down the road, and then went put together. Pretty cool, really. Okay. Um, let's read the end to the end of the chapter. Does somebody want to read from verse 34 to the end of the chapter 4? <laughs> 34 to the end? Yeah. So Moses, Aaron, and the leaders of the community registered the Kohathites by their clans and their ancestral houses. <clears throat> Men from 30 years old to 50 years old, everyone who was qualified for work at the tent of meeting. The men registered by their clans numbered 2,750. These were registered men of the Kohathite clans, everyone who could serve at the tent of meeting. Moses and Aaron registered them at the Lord's command through Moses. The Gershonites were registered by their clans in their ancestral houses, men from 30 years old to 50 years old, everyone who was uh, qualified for work at the tent of meeting. <clears throat> the men registered by their clans and their ancestral houses numbered 2,630. These were the registered men of the Gershonite clans. At the Lord's command, Moses and Aaron registered everyone who could serve at the tent of meeting. 
the men of the Mararite clans were registered by their clans and their ancestral houses, those from 30 years old to 50 years old, everyone who was qualified for work at the tent of meeting. The men registered by their clans numbered 3,200. These were the registered men of the Mararite clans. Moses and Aaron registered them at the Lord's command through Moses. <coughs> Moses, Aaron, and the leaders of Israel registered all the Levites by their clans and their ancestral houses from 30 years old to 50 years old, everyone who was qualified to do the work of serving at the tent of meeting and transporting it. Their registered men numbered 8,580. At the Lord's command, they were registered under the direction of Moses, each one according to his work and transportation duty. And his assignment was as the Lord commanded Moses. Okay. Um, interesting. So let's see, I think I have a chart on that. Let me see here. So I think those are the numbers we read, I think. Um, those, how many people were involved? And the number is 22,300 for all of them. And it shows what they were, what they were doing. It shows where they camped. So this is all very detailed. One of the questions that all often comes up is if you add up those numbers, you get 22,300. And the number we got before was 22,000. And you ask yourself, so what's the difference? It took me a long time to figure this out. But we're really counting two different things. The 22,000 number we got was all males from one month old and up. This is the number of men from 30 to 50. Okay, and it's not got anything to do with firstborns or any of that. This is just people that could actually do the work. So that's, that's the difference, at least I think. Anyway, we're done with the numbers for a while. We do, the book of numbers, they do a census at the first of the book to show, to count off how many Israelites there were uh, when they were at the, you know, at the beginning uh, at Mount Sinai. And then after we go through the entire book of Numbers and 40 years passes, uh, they, and they're ready to go into cross the Jordan and go into the promised land, they count them again. So we'll look at the same kind of information, but we won't go through all the Levite stuff when we get to the end of the book. But now we can move on to something else, unless you guys want to play with some numbers some more. People don't. So chapter five, um, let's see here. Let me see how I'm gonna do that. There's, there's some pretty good stuff here. Let's read the, um, through verse 10, the first 10 verses and see if we can, somebody wanna read the first 10 verses? Oh, chapter 5? Yeah. Then Yahuwah spoke to Moshe, saying, Command the sons of Israel that they send away from the camp every leper and everyone having a discharge and everyone who is unclean because of a dead person. You shall send away both male and female. You shall send them outside the camp so that they will not defile their camp where I dwell in their midst. The sons of Israel did so and sent them outside the camp. Just as the Lord had spoken to Moshe, thus the sons of Israel did. Then Yahweh spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel. When a man or woman commits any of the sins of mankind, 
acting unfaithfully against Yahuwah, and that person is guilty, then he shall confess his sins which he has committed, and he shall make restitution in full for his wrong, and add it to one-fifth of it, and, it, and give it to him whom he has wronged. But if the man has no relative to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution which is made for the wrong must go to Yahuwah for the priest, besides the ram of atonement by which atonement is made for him. Also, every contribution pertaining to all the holy gifts of the sons of Israel, which they offer to the priest, shall be his. So every man's holy gifts shall be his. Whatever any man gives to the priest, it becomes his. Okay, this is one of those sections where I kind of don't understand exactly why it's here, but it brings up some things that we should probably talk about anyway. Um, so for what reasons could a person be sent away from the camp? Leprosy. Leprosy or infectious skin disease. What else? Touching a dead body. What? Touching a dead body, a corpse. Dead, touching a dead body or having some kind of an open oozing sore, right? Yeah, yeah, with a, with a funny colored hair in it. The, um, these are all things that we dealt with at length in Leviticus, right? And uh, we can go through some of this discussion again if you want, but it basically has to do with the fact that um, it's the difference between clean and unclean. And in order to draw near to God, in order to interact with Him, He demands that you be uh, ceremonially clean. And these things are examples of ceremonial uncleanness. John? So I'm wondering, is there a continuity between what we just read? Well, there probably is, but I can't see it. Maybe you can. Well, what I was thinking of before, we were all setting boundaries. You know, these guys go here, those guys go there, they do this, they do that. Mm -hmm. And these guys are <clears throat> way out. Yeah. <laughs> In the, in the yeah, back yeah. 40, that's where they're hanging out. Yeah, yeah. So the boundaries are... Over here, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That's, that could have something to do with it. Um, and again, it's probably, if nothing else, it's an example or it's a time to reinforce this need for purity. The, I have a heading in my Bible that says purity of the camp. So, I mean, in uh, Leviticus and Exodus, a lot of times we'd be reading along and there'd be some little paragraph about um, you know, don't, you know, make sure and always observe the, the Shabbat observe Sabbath. And I remember the first time I thought, boy, why on earth is that there? Until it dawned on me after many times that it was in the middle of a section in which they were building the tabernacle. And his point was, okay, you're building the tabernacle, but you still have to observe the Shabbat. So that's something like this. Okay, I've told you where everybody's camping, but don't forget that there are people that can't camp with you. Now, these sound harsh, remember when we talked about them, but these are all typically temporary. I mean, I guess uh, in some cases the skin disease and the leprosy were uh, perhaps terminal or long-lasting, but in general, most of the people that were banned from the camp for this kind of stuff, it was either till evening or for seven days, something like that. So it wasn't like they were gone forever. It was just they could not be in the camp when they were in a state of, of uncleanness. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> I mean, we're kind of assuming that it's going to be this, you know, lifelong disease that you have. But it's interesting, it's connected with a judgment. If you've, if you've committed a sin, right? Mm -hmm. Why is it all of a sudden talking about the leprosy and all these things? And all of a sudden now they we're talking about how to judge things. Sins of restitution, yeah. And if you don't 
confess, the, if you don't confess, it, doesn't it say that too? You have to confess the sin that you made. Mm -hmm. I'm just, you know. Yep, it says must, by confess, must confess the sin he has committed. By, by verse proximity, I'm connecting the, the leprosy, the disease with not confessing the sins that you've done. That could be. That could be. That's probably not a... Do you like that? Verse proximity. That's yeah. a new thing I just came up with. Just invented that. This is talking about the children of Israel. Yep. Is there any of these clans that are exempt from this? No. no. So this includes Levites too? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I thought so. Yep. Um, one of the things that thought, uh, not exactly where you were going, but one of the things I thought is that the question has come up here before, and I've, I've still, I'm still noodling on it. You know, we, we have a fair number of, uh, what do they call them? Mixed yeah, mixed multitudes. When they left Egypt, you know, there were a bunch of, of non-Israelites that decided to go with them because they could see who was winning the war between uh, Yahweh and Pharaoh. And, and, and there, uh, there can be a pretty strong case made for the fact that they were not an insignificant number. You know, there was quite a few of these mixed multitudes that came with them. And theoretically, none of them are listed here, right? Um, but after thinking about that a while, I'm open to de debate on all of this. It occurs to me that the reason they would come, I mean, in order to come, they would have to buddy up with some, some Israelite, right? They'd have to say, uh, you know, I, I realize that your God is God and that Pharaoh's kind of a goofball, so, you know, let's, can I go with you? And, and, and so they develop friendships. And so I'm gathering that, uh, I'm assuming that each one of the mixed multitudes probably had some Israelite or family of Israelites that they were at least somewhat acquainted with. And they probably fell in with them in some way. Otherwise, we don't have any way of knowing who these mixed multitudes are. Although we run into them throughout the stories in the rest of the Torah. We run into a lot of a lot of uh, heroic characters that aren't Israelites. Yeah. So, if you don't have a kinsman to redeem you, right? Mm-hmm. Or recompense. I don't know if there's a difference there. Well, okay, that's, that's getting into this next section about restitution for wrongs. We can talk about that. Uh, were you... Well, I'm just saying, if you don't have a kinsman to... Re to do this, to resolve this issue for you, no problem. Do the use the priest. Yeah, okay. That's so fine. who's our priest? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I like that. That fits. We were given the bill of divorce. We didn't have any kinsmen to redeem us. Yeah. So. so well, that's a good one. I like that. Yeah, that fits pretty well. I'm just wondering, if there's a difference between recompense and redemption, the Hebrew word. Well, there's a little bit of a difference, but the. Let's go to this next section. Restitution for wrongs is what mine says. It's this next paragraph, from verse five to ten. And basically what this one says is, uh, you remember when we were looking at the um, prescribed offerings in Leviticus, up toward the beginning of Leviticus, there were the, the last two that they talked about, the last two animal uh, offerings. Uh, one was called the sin offering and the other was called the guilt offering, at least in my Bible. They probably had different names. Um, but one, the way I was able to, to, to differentiate them is the one that in this Bible is called the guilt offering, always had restitution. The guilt offering was for sins that were committed against another person. You know, you stole his cow, 
or you wrecked his car or you, you know, robbed him or something. So those you had to, um, you had to repay. You had to uh, provide restitution to the party that you um, hurt. And the restitution was always the same. It was the value of whatever it was that you took or wasted or whatever plus 20%. So you always had to do that. And that's what this says. It says, uh, must confess, I'm in verse 7, and must confess the sin he has committed. He must make full restitution for his wrong and add one-fifth to it and give it to the person that he has wronged. That was the, that was the process for a guilt offering. The sin offering was between you and God. You know, you've done this thing and you've taken care of the party that you harmed. Now you need to get yourself right with God. And so the sin offering was a sacrifice that you did to God. So, and it talks about both of those, but it does mention. So that's the difference a, between re restitution and redemption, as far as you. Well, I don't know. Are about you comparing that. those two, or? No, some? I wasn't really. I was okay. just talking about what what they're talking about here. Um, that's the best way to understand. I, I, I tell you what I'm doing. I was kind of reinforcing some of these um, things we learned in Leviticus because I don't want you to forget them. <laughs> and John, I think didn't you ask on recompense? My death, my um, King James companion says, "Return back." Return back. Like uh, the redeeming kind of. I mean, redemption and rec redemption and restitution are kind of close. Restitution is more just like a physical. This is the damage that was. It's a, an amount. Yeah. Redemption yeah. is more like an attitude, like teshuva. It's in some sense, it's a trade. A what? Redem a trade. Redemption oh, a trade. always, uh, to me, implies some kind of a trade. Hmm. Um, whereas restitution is like you say, you've got to pay back what you took. They're a little different. They both start with R. <laughs> R-E. So anyway, are there any thoughts about either one of those two little passages? It does point out here, it says that... Uh, um, I think it does. Well, the the person, the priests get to determine the value of the item. Okay, uh, so that's you know John was talking earlier. What did the priests do? That was one of their major functions. They were to determine. They they were the they were the judges, really. They were the ones that decided that uh, okay that sheep that you took was worth fifty bucks. So pay. Him, 75 bucks or whatever word. That's no, not that, whatever. <laughs> 60 bucks. That's what it would be. 50 bucks plus 20%. Anyway, enough of that. Unless you guys find some hidden nuggets in there. Yes? Well, it's, it's not much, but I'm just kind of looking online and it says recompense versus restitution. And restitution, they're saying, is more of a legal um, word. It's a noun. And recompense is. Um, it says, an equivalent return for anything given, done, or suffered, compensation, ward, reward, amends, and um, requital. So, and also, in something else I was reading, it's um, to indemnify. So, you know, an example of indemnifying somebody is, for example, if, you were, if your house burnt to the ground um, and you had insurance, then your insurance would indemnify you and pay you uh, what your house was worth to restore everything that um, indemnify to me yeah means indemnify replace. it's indemnify yeah, so yeah, yeah. so um, so they, they give you back what you lost 
these are all pretty similar ideas, but anyway, I'm allowed to have fun here. Okay, well then we go on to another real exciting one. If this is one of my favorite ones, uh, the test for the unfaithful wife. You look hard, high and far for the... Yeah, test for the unfaithful wife. Would somebody like to read the test for the unfaithful wife? It starts in verse 11, and it goes to the end of the chapter. You give somebody else a chance. That's right, Elijah. That's Let's see. Hashem spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, Any man whose wife shall go astray and commit treachery against him. And a man a man could have lain with her carnally, but it was hidden from the eyes of her husband, and she became secluded and could have been defiled. But there was no witness against her, and she had not been forced, and a spirit of jealousy had passed over him, and he had warned his wife, and she had become defiled or a spirit of jealousy had passed over him and he had, a, he had warned his wife and she had not become defiled. The man shall bring his wife to the Kohen and he shall bring her offering for her, a tenth ephah of barley flour. He shall not pour out oil over it and shall not put frankincense upon upon it, for it is a meal offering of jealousies, a meal offering of remembrance, a reminder of iniquity. The corn shall bring her near and have her stand before Hashem. The corn shall take sacred water in an earthen vessel, and the Kohen shall take from the earth that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it in. The water. The Kohen shall have the woman stand before Hashem and uncover the, the woman's head, and upon her palms he shall put the meal offering of remembrance. It is a meal offering of jealousies, and in the hand of the corn shall be the bitter waters that cause curse. The corn shall adjure her and say to the woman, if a man has not lain with you, and you have not strayed in defilement with someone other than your husband, then be proven innocent of these bitter waters that cause, that cause curse. But if you have strayed with someone other than your, than your husband, and if you have become defiled, and a man other than your husband has lain with you, 
the coin shall adjure the woman with the oath of the curse, and the coin shall shall to the woman shall say to the woman, My Hashem render you as a curse and as an coin shall say to the woman, May may Hashem render you as a curse and as an oath amid your people. When Hashem causes your thigh to collapse and your stomach to distend, these waters that cause curse shall enter you innards to cause some stomach, some stomach to distend and thigh to collapse. And the woman shall respond, Amen, Amen. The Kohen shall, shall inscribe these curses on a scroll and erase it into the bitter waters when he shall cause the woman to drink the bitter waters that cause curse, then, then the waters that cause curse shall come into her for, for bitterness. The corn shall take the meal offering of jealousies from the hand of, of the woman. He shall lead, he shall shall wave the meal offering before Hashem, and he shall bring it near the altar. The coin shall scoop up from the meal offering its remembrance and cause it to, cause it to go up and smoke on the altar, after which he shall cause the woman to drink the water. He shall cause her to drink the water and it shall be that if she had become defiled and had committed treachery against her husband, the waters that cause curse shall come into her for bitterness, and her stomach shall be distended, and her thigh shall collapse, and the woman shall become a curse amid her people. But if the woman had not become defiled, and she is pure, then she shall be proven innocent, and she shall bear seed. This is the law of the jealousies, when a woman shall go astray with someone other than her husband and become defiled, or of a man over whom passes a spirit of jealousy, and he warns his wife, and he causes his wife to stand before Hashem. Then the coin shall carry out for her this, en this entire law. The man will be innocent of iniquity, but that woman shall bear her iniquity. Okay. So, who can describe this situation? wants to tell me about what's going on here what what's the deal how's it work if a man just feels jealous and he doesn't really have any evidence even if it's not true or it, it might be true it might be true okay but it could no be witness. true and it could not be true there's no witness there's no witness okay and so so the women 
has to come before the Kohen. Cohen. What? The, the, the husband brings the charge. Well, yeah, he brings the charge. Drags her with him. Right, and drags mm -hmm. her along. And then um, <laughs> kicking and screaming. And, <laughs> and then, um, you know, she, what gets me is what she says, amen, amen. Wait, just sure. describe the thing okay. first. But, but the thing, then, then he takes the, the Cohen takes the, first, what does he do first? Let me see. Let me go back here. Um, let's see. He takes, he takes the man, the man who brings his wife and brings her an, an offering for her, a tenth ephah of barley flour. And, you know, you don't pour oil and, and you don't put frankincense on it because it's a meal offering of jealousy. Go on with the... Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then he brings her near and has her stand before... The Kohen has her stand before Hashem, before Yehovah. The Kohen shall take sacred water in an earth... It, it, then he takes sacred water in an earthenware vessel and he takes the earth that is on the floor of the tabernacle and puts it into the water. Some, some dust. Right. And then the Kohen has the women stand before Yahweh, uncover the woman's head, and upon her, her palms, he puts the meal offering of remembrance. I didn't want you to read it. I just want you okay. to tell me in your own words well, what happens. Well, he, he, he has her hold these in her hands. And then he, then he, Then he says to the woman, if a man is not laying with you and you, you know, you strayed, then, then nothing else is going to happen to you. But if you strayed, then, you know, you're going to have trouble. So he pronounces the curse. He pronounces the curse. Says, if you are guilty, then, then this is what's going to happen to right. you. What happens to her? Well, she, she, her stomach gets distended and, and her thigh collapses, which I think means she can't bear children. Well, she'll, she'll probably, this is my interpretation, she'll probably have a bad stomach ache and she won't conceive. Right. Okay. Um, but well, what, happens, what happens if she's not guilty? Then nothing happens. Nothing happens, okay. Okay. And then the coin said that then it's an interesting thing because then he takes waters. Oh, he no, wrote wait. it down on a piece of paper. He wrote it down on a piece of paper. And he washes the ink yeah. off into the thing. Right. And then he says, okay, now drink this. Right. Okay, so what she's drinking is water with dirt in it and some ink. Do you know, I was going to say, where is it that it says that the name of Yehovah is, is erased? Because it, I... I'll let you work on that. I just wanted to get the story out so we could talk no, about it. No, I just thought that they said it in this case, but it isn't, no. right? Okay. Okay, but anyway, he's, he's erasing... Whatever. Washing the curse. Washing the curse. Off into the stuff that she drinks. Right. So like I say, she drinks water, dirt, and, and the curse. Ink. And the curse. In a sense. So yes, let's let's okay. see what uh, Chris has to say. Well, she just said something interesting too. So I also realized that in this time and place, the dirt was coming from the holy land. So it's a way of intervening and letting Yah be the guidance of that, which I understand. Well, as a matter of fact, it's clear that the judge is God. Yes. Because, and um, 
the woman, you know, you said, why does she say amen, amen? What's amen mean? I agree. So be it. So she basically, the curse, what the guy says, the priest says, if you are guilty, if you have committed adultery, then when you drink this, your thigh is going to waste away and your stomach is going to blow up. And um, if you're not guilty, it won't happen. And so the woman says, so be it. In other words, I understand the curse. I see what's going to happen. I want to drink it. Right. Now, if she's guilty, she's really brave. If she's, uh, if she's not guilty, then she's got a lot of faith because she knows nothing's going to happen, right? But that's, that's the situation that she's in. So I have maybe one or two questions. One, I get that like in the question C, it's like I feel like it benefits the wife in this way because the time period, your little side note over here caught my eye saying, look, this, they literally get treated maybe a little bit better than a slave. So if, for instance, she's found guilty, there's going to be a lot of repercussive problems with that that are probably physically induced. Flashing forward to today, in my line of work, I deal with couples a lot of times, and jealousy is a huge issue. Now, when it's not warranted jealousy, in this, and this is where I get confused, because in the time period, okay, I understand that, but now it's, if it's not warranted, why isn't the, like, even after she's found unguilty, is there a place or a reference to show what the male should do to rid his mind of jealous thoughts without warranted? Well, um, no, Does and that... there probably should be. However, let's talk about that for a minute. Um, he has, for whatever reason, gotten himself all worked up into this jealous thing. So he's making her life miserable anyway, right? right. And so, and, and she might have been part of this whole, whole decision. Okay, look, I didn't do it, but if you don't believe me, let's go do this. Let's go talk to the priest about it, okay? So, because she's got nothing to, I'm, I'm, I'm hypothetically, she's got nothing to be afraid of. So she does this, nothing happens. Well, the guy, number one, he's got a, a fair amount of shame he needs to deal with, right? Maybe if, if life were good, the priest would say, you turkey, what'd you do that for, you know? <laughs> so may, maybe there's some of that going on. But nonetheless, he also, he still has his responsibility for his wife. She is a wife in good standing. The reason this was a common thing, or the re one of the reasons this was implemented, is because men in this time could basically grow tired of their wives and uh, concoct something and say, ha, I saw you over there talking to Fred. I know you've been to bed with him. I'm divorcing you. And it was done. So it was I mean, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't that hard to do. And, and so in some sense, this was a protection for her. It's more of a safety Because net. if she could go through this and not have it, not, not be found guilty, then he couldn't divorce her, at least not for that. That makes you know, sense. She, uh, so it's not the best, like I say, you, one of the things you do have to do is get yourself in the, in the frame of mind where women weren't treated very well. <laughs> but, and this really is kind of a protection. Yeah. Here's, um, my question is, and I, and I haven't, I just, it, this just kind of dawned on me with studying this, and I haven't, you might have some insight is why I'm asking. Fine. Israel being divorced because they were the unfaithful wife who basically cheated with another. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm glad you went there. <laughs> because uh, one of the things that's fun to, uh, to talk about um, you remember, let's, uh, we can go back there and look, but let's talk about it for a minute. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai the first time with the tablets, and what were they doing down there?
were busy, you know, dancing around and having revelry with this golden calf that just happened to pop out of the fire as Aaron was making it, right? And, uh, and Moses was quite upset, right? And he threw the tablets on the ground and he broke them. What did he do with the uh, golden calf? Ground it up. And what did he do with the ground up stuff? Put it in the water and made them drink it. Made them drink it. Where do you suppose that idea came from? Or this idea came from that? And then what happened after that? He said, Moses says, all of those, all of you who are with God, come with me. And the Levites came over, uh, and it was John that said, that's, I mean, in a lot of people's minds, that's the reason the Levites were chosen to be the priests, is because they said, we'll come over. And then they went around, each man with his sword, and killed his brother and his uncle or his cousin, his, his friends. How do you suppose they know who to kill? Maybe this had something to do with it. I don't know. But the point is, is the, the relationship that, that it can't just be coincidental that he burned the calf, mixed it with water, and made them drink it. If this is what happened, then the Levites, as they're running through the camp, wouldn't have too much trouble figuring out who, <laughs> who the guilty parties were. And this also fits so well with the fact that God views idolatry the same way as his law says adultery, right? So that's a, that, I'm glad you brought the point up. That's, well, I, I love going there. I, I've thought before, now I could be off, but I thought before that actually this has more to, it does have everything to do with Yeshua and redemption because also the bitter water was given to him as he was going to the cross. And I, and I was just thinking that, that in some ways he took the, he did take the punishment for, you know, for the sins of Israel and for, you know, Israel, mm -hmm. what they were doing. So, you know, so in some ways he drank that cup for Israel in a sense is what I always think. Okay. But, you know, I could be no, that's all right. off, you know. That's, that's okay. I don't, I don't see anything real wrong with that. This um, whole kind of situation just put me in mind of another scripture in, um, in Deuteronomy. Okay. Chapter 19, verse 15 through 21. Okay. It says, one witness cannot establish any wrongdoing or sin against a person, whatever that person has done. A fact must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If a malicious witness testifies against someone accusing him of a crime, the two people in the dispute must stand in the presence of the Lord before the priests and judge, um, judges and authority at that time. The judges are to make a careful investigation, and if the witness turns out to be a liar who has falsely accused his brother, you must do to him as he intended to do to his brother. You must purge the evil from you. Then everyone else will hear and be afraid, and they will never again do anything evil like this among you. You must not show pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, and foot for foot. So I was just, they asked earlier, you know, what do they do to the guy, you know, if he's wrong? I mean, he may be actually thinking that she cheated, but if he's lying to get something out of it, then... I don't know. That's just what that reminds um, me. Of. Well, I think that's a very good point. That I mean, it doesn't say that anything like that was done, but uh, in my opinion, probably should have been. 
Yeah. Well, yeah. in fact, it actually says the man won't bear any iniquity. I mean, it does say that in, in this case, in this case, he doesn't ha get any guilt for it. But the, you know, it says that in, in this context is all I'm saying. Okay. Which I don't get that. <laughs> I remember the first time I read this test for an unfaithful wife. I mean, this is at least as weird as the, you know, the strangling the birds and the water, or draining the blood over the water and all that kind of stuff to, that goes on with the leprosy thing. Some of God's stuff is just really hard to figure out. But this one meant a lot more to me when I was able to connect it to the situation in Exodus and to realize, you know, that, uh, that God views idolatry the way his law talks about adultery. Yeah. Go ahead, Robert. I can see the Cohen going, uh, no, come on, Joe. Yeah. We, you know, yeah, that, that uh, right. I'm going to save you from some embarrassment here. We're just going to pretend like you never said that in the first <laughs> place. Go back home. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. And it would make sense if, like Lisa pointed out, if, if, a, you know, like her, her thigh collapsing, if it meant that she was, you know, barren and couldn't have any more kids. I mean, then, you know, where we had learned an eye for an eye, punishment fits the crime kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. Okay, if she's out hooing around, then you know what, you're... That ought to, that's fair. You lose the right to have a yeah. ha bear yeah. seed from your rightful husband. Yep, yep. Sorry, I tried to pick that word. So going off of what Alexandra said, and bringing that into this chapter verse, if the husband wrongfully accused wife and had intentions to do something and made that verbally clear, and then they went to and found out that she wasn't, who would put that punishment back onto the male for being wrong? If well, that, or is that not? Let's let's say the whole the whole thing is hypothetical because we don't have we don't have anything that says that. But the answer to your question is the priests. You know, the, those were the guys. They were the judges, and uh, whenever they you brought a matter to them, they made the decision, and the decision stood because theoretically they were speaking for God. You know, they were supposed to be the conduit between the people and God. And so they didn't always do a great job. And, and like I say, we're on thin ice because it doesn't say that anywhere here. But it would be, I like uh, Robert's rendition is pretty good. You know, the, if the priest is doing his job, he's going to say, you know, look, Joe, this, this was a bad thing. Why don't, you, uh, <laughs> why don't you figure a way to fix this up with her because you're, you're not doing right here. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I mean, okay, so we're in Numbers, reading this in Numbers, but that scripture's in Deuteronomy. Yep. So does that mean that that law was put into place after this Well, law? yes, in some sense, because, um, uh, you know, it's not necessarily chronological, but Deuteronomy is definitely, you know, Moses' monologue before he dies while the Israelites are waiting to cross the Jordan. So it occurs at the end of his 120-year life. At the end of Deuteronomy, Moses dies. So it's pretty safe to assume that this stuff was done uh, and the law was in place before that. Okay. Well, um, in that case, I think that to answer that question, Yah would probably just do what he thinks is best himself. <laughs> 
<laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> Deuteronomy what? <clears throat> You're going to love Deuteronomy when you get there. Deuteronomy is a great book. So I, connecting it back to the bill of divorce given to the house of Israel, Yeshua Good. came but for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And in John 5, 6, or 7, I can't remember what it was, the Pharisees come to him with an adulterous woman that they, a woman that they accused of adultery. And he is at the temple, and he draws something in the temple dirt. So there's a connection there to the, <clears throat> to the dirt, and, the, uh, you know, and it's in the temple there. Yeah. It's also kind of interesting that they want his opinion. Like, he has the authority to make a decision on that. That's kind of interesting. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's like that's some sort of a setup. The, the, yeah, the I know Pharisees it's a setup, but he set set him up. Yeah. Well, but I'm, what I'm getting at is... They're, they're, impl the implication is they'll respect his authority, his decision on the matter, yeah. Yeah. which should be just a priestly one. I think he was scribbling the laws for the jealous husband. Could be. Could very well be. Yeah. This curse, maybe. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. The curse, that's what I was thinking. We, I, you know, I came here in practice so that we could end at exactly the proper time on this note. Um, we'll pick up Next, next time in chapter 6 and talk about Nazarites, the Nazarite vow and all of that. But this has been fun. Uh, there's always at least one thing we can talk about, you know, that's fun each, each time we do this. I like this one. Ow. This is, there's a lot of good stuff in numbers. We're going to have fun with it. Are there any final comments? If anybody wants the things on the table as they go out the door, help yourself. Good. Oh, and also I, I ran out of the numbers books, but I'll print some more. So next week I'll have more of these numbers books if you want one. Okay, let me close in prayer. Father God, thank you for the evening. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenges that it presents, but thank you for the light that it sheds. Um, you are indeed an awesome God, and learning about you is, is a lifelong endeavor, and it's very rewarding. Jesus, bless us as we go through our week this week. Help us to think about these things and other things that you have for us until we meet on Shabbat. In Yeshua's name, amen. Thanks very much. Thank you, Jerry. Thank